people need to be serious and have the intestinal fortitude to talk about large numbers of deportations, starting with this Biden population uh, to remove them because we simply cannot handle these numbers of people uh, or the costs that, that come with it. We deserve, like every other country, to have a safe, orderly, and manageable immigration system year by year. Hi again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Narrative with Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, and David Mahan joining you. And we've got big breaking news to discuss in Ohio today. The sun is out, oh gentlemen. It is not it rumor. We actually saw I the see, sun today. I see a little bit out that window here. It happened. It's uh, uncanny. We I went, felt so good I shaved. <laughs> all, <laughs> like felt like stores. we didn't see it for all 60 days of January. That's right. But exactly. <laughs> we made uh, it to February and the sun came out and the Lord blessed us with some sunshine today. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, we're going to cover some, I think, important ground today. We've yeah. got an interview with Laura Reese coming up uh, where we're going to talk about the very complicated situation at the border and all the things that are weaved into that. And it it's going to be one of those discussions, I think, where you might not understand going into the conversation what's happening, but you're going to have that sort of 30,000 foot view of it when you come out of it. Just a, a really exciting opportunity, I think, on, on a complicated issue. Now, every episode is my favorite episode, but this, but this <laughs> one's a, a, a really like this is one that we, we finished. I'm like, I was really proud of that conversation because like it takes all of the different aspects of what's going on between Greg Abbott and Biden and really explains very well the, the, the whole situation in, in plain terms. It was a very, uh, very amazing discussion we had about putting a border between Ohio and Michigan. Yeah. You know, you all thought about it, right? But I was just brave enough to bring it up. I, I think it was Ohio and Mexico is what it you was, said. Maybe. And a special uh, uh, you know, prize for anyone that can hear David's stomach growl in the middle. Come on, uh, that, like it, <laughs> So we got the sound guy over here, like the podcast man. Start talking talking about Mexico and all I can think about is tacos. Well, to, to get down to a more serious topic here in the, the first part of the show today, a little bit of a Twitter controversy. I mean, there's always yeah. Twitter controversy, yeah. so we can't talk about all of them. But, but this was one that we felt like we needed to touch on because it involved Alistair Begg, who mm-hmm. certainly was a, a big supporter of CCV and, and issue one specifically in November. And he had some comments that surfaced on Twitter from his radio program. And they went viral, as they tend to do when they're, when they're of a nature that serves one side over another in, in cultural issues, especially coming from a respected religious leader. And we're just going to talk about what he said. But first, we want to give you, the audience, the opportunity to, to hear those comments if you haven't. And then um, we'll come back and we'll kind of give some of our thoughts and, and unpack this. You and I know that we field questions all the time that go along the lines of, uh, my grandson is about to be married to a transgender person, and I don't know what to do about this, and I'm calling to ask you to tell me what to do, which is a huge responsibility. And in a conversation like that just a few days ago, um, and uh, people may not like this answer, but I I asked the grandmother, does your grandson understand your Uh, belief in Jesus? Yes. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance uh, in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. I said, well, then, okay, as long as he knows that, 
then I suggest that you do go to the ceremony, mm-hmm. and I suggest that you buy them a gift. Mm-hmm. Oh, she said, what? She was caught off guard. I said, well, here's the thing. You're not going to, your, your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared mm-hmm. to countenance anything. And it is a fancy, it is a fine line, isn't it? It really yeah. is. And people need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think we're going to take that risk. We're going to have to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and, and don't understand that he is a king. Aaron, the advice that Alistair gave in this specific situation was to attend the wedding. I'm assuming this is a gay wedding and Mm a a wedding of two people in the trans community. Um, Advice was, as a Christian, you should go. Uh, What do you think of that? So, no, right, Um, first and foremost, and and I think we'll we'll unpack um, a lot of things there on on why not. and and I'll say this is, uh, and I know we're going to talk about this more. That Alistair is a a, a dear friend and and a, just somebody whose ministry has blessed me beyond belief, um, and uh, and I respect. Uh, I I I can see and understand the argument that he's making, um, but I, I think it is is fundamentally. Uh, misunderstanding the, the 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 role and what marriage is right compared to um, sort of other contexts in which we are called to engage with um, you know unbelieving unrepentant the unbelieving unrepentant world right um, and and you know the 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 fundamental difference between Jesus dining with taxpayers and prostitutes and things like that and um, and the actual act of participating in uh, what is a sacrament um, in, in the Bible, you know, um, what is a um, a religious uh, ceremony, uh, even even if it's being performed in an a religious way, it is a um, it, it's it is a religious ceremony for Christians, um, and you know, participating in that, I think, I believe, uh, has a um, not only a uh, a negative impact on uh, the the witness to the individual, but there there's also I think this is one of these things where it's not just uh, about what our witness is, right? The question here is not just what is our witness, and and the question is what is what is sin, um, and am I doing something unrighteous and uh, we are are never allowed to do something unrighteous, even if it is for a righteous ends, right? Um, and the the act of attending something that is celebrating and uh, commemorating, memorializing, instituting an actual evil, sinful thing, uh, us being a part of that is uh, is sin, and therefore it the 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 end result or our goal with it. Um, is is irrelevant, right? It, we, it can't justify the the evil act. God does not use, God does not call us to do evil things to a, attain righteous ends, um, and so I, I just fundamentally think that Alistair is um, 
the worst thing I can say here about Alistair is that he is wrong. And, and I think, too, before we get too far down this road, it's it's worth noting that he was not condoning gay marriage. Right. It, yeah. th- this was this was advice to to a grandmother to go to a ceremony that we're disagreeing with. And, and I think we at least need to give him the benefit of the doubt that he has been, I think, a very clear teacher on the biblical position of homosexuality being a sin. Yeah, and, and I think there, there's a lot more I want to say on that. Um, and, and I also want to say we just played a very limited clip of the broader limited clip that's been circulating around, and we didn't play, and we'll, and we'll put it in the show notes, we didn't play the the larger response clip that he uh, that he shared this past Sunday, and I, I really do want to encourage folks because this this is really blowing up. I really do want to encourage folks to to watch those two clips. Again, I I don't it it, it wasn't persuasive to me to change our view, but it it does make me res- like I, knowing Alistair, knowing his ministry, knowing I respect him and I understand where he's coming from. I just think he's missing some very important details here. But I don't know, Dave. What, what do you think? Again, no, I have no hate, you know, towards the man. I, you know, appreciate his ministry and what the gift that he is to the body of Christ. I do, however, disagree. Uh, like you said, Aaron, um, the thing that caught me when I was listening to a guy was when he he brought up that word affirmation, or he brought up the fact that, um, you know. He didn't want people to be able to say, hey, look at what they're doing. You're just proving everybody right. You're you're hateful. You're a bigot. And it just kind of reminds me of that cultural moray uh, established, which I feel is demonic, that affirmation, you know, nothing but total affirmation for this LGBT philosophy um, equals uh, love. And then, you know, disagreement of any kind equals hate. That was the thing that caught me off guard. And how do we get to where we're we're denying the very difference between males and females? How do we get to where, you know, you have so many people in the body of Christ will take a covenant act of marriage between a man and a woman clearly laid out in Genesis, even before sin existed in the world. And then now we can say, okay, well, yeah, you know, two women can do it too. How do we get there? It's a very slippery slope and it's a long process. And I feel like, you know, what he said is is how we get there. Um, you know, what, is, what does the word say, right? And so um, whenever I come up against these, these cultural um, issues, I, I go to the word. And so Ephesians 4, um, you know, we talk about affirmation. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding. And so I don't care, you know, if I affirm something that is unbiblical, I want to be affirmed by God. What does he affirm? And you go a little further in in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, um, six verse, let no one deceive you with empty words. If you're sitting in a marriage between two men or two women, that is not a covenant. That is not a biblical covenant. Those are empty words, and that impacts the broader society because there'll be children involved at some point um, in, in some regard. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, right? That compromise. Therefore, listen, do not partake with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now in verse two, it says, yeah, walk as children of love, for sure. But also as children of light, right? The, tr- the truth and the love thing. Right. Do again. Eleven. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose the darkness. 
Right. So not only do we not care if somebody, you know, is like, oh, they're going to hate on us because of our stance on the word. And we're going to go even further and say, not only am I not going to participate, but I'm going to be very explicit in why I cannot participate. I have to expose the darkness. And then it, it concludes right here. It says, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. I feel like if we do what Alistair's saying, we cease to be the light and expose darkness. Well, and I think, David, one of the things I re- that was spot on, man, and, and, and I think one of the things that I really appreciate about what you just said is the thing that we, we talk about this all the time. We, we would talk about this a lot in the abortion context, right? Um, where one of the fundamental like truths we have to attack is that abortion never helps anybody, right? right? It's obviously not the woman or, or the baby, but especially the woman. Right. Even the woman in a very difficult situation or, or like the, the actual act of taking the life of your own child is harmful to the soul. It, sin is harmful to the soul and to the body, right? Um, and so going to this wedding where they might think this is good for them, it is, it's harmful to their soul. And being there as they are doing something that is harmful to their soul um, in a in a, a broad you know sort of um, you know, really existential serious way um, is uh, and and actively you know even if they know you're not affirming it you being there is 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 to some degree assenting that that, that this evil is good yes especially in a wedding right especially yeah. in a marriage ceremony right and and it's especially it's 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 fundamentally different in its nature than sitting next to the alcoholic at the bar. And and talking to them, right? It it, it is it, there. There's there's these are different in degrees and, and different in in their nature. Of what, Having what a gay about. family member over for right. the holidays that's yeah. different. It absolutely, is. yeah, absolutely welcome. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering here too if there's there's some degree of this that's just so forced on us by the culture. Obviously, there is, where they're able to say the, the gay couple is able to say. If you don't come to my wedding, then you are breaking fellowship with me. Well, we don't have the freedom to say, if you don't come to church with me, you're breaking right. fellowship with me. Yeah. Right? Like there, there's almost, I, I think I think I'm with Alistair to the point that he said, have you voiced your disapproval and that you can't give us give this any kind of approval in any way? And, and yes, that was the answer. Yeah. I think at that point then it becomes, okay, then you understand why I can't come to this, but I right. still want to be in relationship with you. Yeah. And, and and I think that's where I part from him on on his his recommendation there. No, I, I think that's that's spot on, Mike, just in the, the sense of we, we don't, and I think this is what you kind of opened up a little with, with Dave, is how we can't allow other folks to define how we love them, right? Um, we... we we allow God's word to define how we love and, and, and what love looks like. And what we affirm. And what we affirm, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's when we, when we allow, you know, we, we could put this in the context of our, our kids, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much in that, that standpoint of making our, our kids go to bed at a semi-reasonable hour is pure torture. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and you know, it, it's, it is not loving and affirming. And I know that's, I, I, that that's a little over the top and an, but, but 
just wait till they get old. Exactly, it'll right? be exactly. an appropriate analogy. It, it, it is. There's a there's a piece of this that we we get in in so many other contexts uh, that we can't allow other folks to to define what it is for us to love them or care for them. Um, and in this, this is you know no no different in that way. And you mentioned Aaron that you know Alistair's a brother. He's yep. he's a friend. Um, in spite of our disagreement with what he had to say, uh, you know, we were talking before we went on on the air that this doesn't, this isn't a, a breaking fellowship type issue. And as I sit here thinking about it, this issue I mentioned, it's not that he somehow approved the sin, right? Um, I think where we disagree with him on, is on the application of compassion, right? Um, you know, as com- Christians, we do want to be compassionate. And if you listen to his clip and if you listen to his response, I think you'll hear his pastor's heart and attempting to be compassionate. Yeah. And, and I think because that's what this issue is, we can say, hey, we disagree with you there, brother, but we're still in fellowship with you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would, um, in all honesty, I would have no problem inviting Alistair back to speak on a different issue, right? Um, on on a different topic, Um uh, like he he came and spoke at our our march for life at our pastor's breakfast on on that and he gave just a phenomenal call uh, for Christians to be a, a voice for the unborn and for 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 pastors to be encouraging their people to vote and vote no on the abortion amendment right that there's I, I would gladly happily have him do that again he wrote the foreword to our our prayer devotional right um, and would would absolutely have him do that again right I, I don't. I don't foresee a, a, a conversation on, on you know, weddings with him anytime soon, um, on, on attending weddings, I should say. But, but even on, on like the sin of homosexuality and the, the, the sin of transgenderism and things like that, he's been unequivocal. And I think one of the things, um, you know, I, I, I like how you put that, his, his, his pastor's heart here. One of the things that I, I've been frustrated by um, is, is folks that, that are seeming to suggest... And I, I understand why, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. I understand why this is where people are going because we've seen so many pastors and 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 large, uh, you know, pastors with large platforms, especially, go down this path. Um, but folks that are suggesting that Alistair is doing this because he wants cultural approval, mm-hmm. um, that is, that is fundamentally wrong. And and you, you look at the 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 ministry he runs, the 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 things the the. Yeah, the fact that he's come and spoken at CCV events, right? Like tells you he doesn't care what people think exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> you, you show up at our things. You're, you're you're very clearly not trying to make friends in the media. You're you're very clearly not trying to get the world to pat you on the back. What, what you what you see here is a, a brother in Christ, a pastor, trying to figure out how to tell his people how to to, to love and live in this age, and I believe coming up very wrong on a on an important question. Um, but de- like to, to suggest uh, that that he is doing this because he's trying to win over the world's approval is just is fundamentally wrong, right? And and I and I've I think that I actually I actually think when you do that too, you weaken the our argument about why his statement is wrong, right? You're not actually engage- it, we kind of talk about this later in the conversation with Laura. You're not engaging with the argument in a way that they would. That that Alistair would recognize, right? I want I want to really. If you're really going to try to defeat an argument, you gotta you gotta address it in the way the person that's making it would recognize and appreciate. Um, and 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 when you start suggesting that he's gone woke or something like that, you're you're, you're fundamentally missing 
uh, who he is. And I think to your point too, Aaron, when, when the red flag went up and you think, Oh no, another, another leader, another person that I respect is headed down this path. You know, I think my initial reaction when I saw it was, oh, no, not Alistair. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, seriously. But this is where context is key. And, and, yeah. and this is where I would echo your recommendation for, for people to go listen to the full clip, not just what we played, and go listen to his response so you can get the full context and then come to your conclusion. Yeah. Because truthfully, I still disagree with him, right. but I understand the context in which he was speaking. Yeah. And, and I think that makes a lot of difference in terms of, is this the first step leftward or toward a more liberal theology? And, and at least with those questions, you can, you can listen to the clips in their fullness and say, no, that's not the case here. No, that, that's right. And, and honestly, like it, we, we were talking about this a little bit ago, and, and actually Maria and I were talking about this too. Like I, I get why folks are so sensitive right now. We've had, and you know, especially in the, you know, the church world that I come from and, and a lot of the church leaders that, that I really admired and looked up to, you know, the, the Russell Moores and, and even more political people like David French or even Tim Keller to some degree and, and uh, folks that, you know, I, I really uh, respected and, and even follow, especially like in the early 2010s, started really being willing to follow down some paths that um, I, I might not have gone down, like even on some things like criminal justice reform and things like that, uh, and immigration to, to try to, to go with them, and discovered, especially through some of the Trump stuff and other things like that, that, oh, these, these folks care a lot more about cultural acceptance and cultural approval uh, than than they do about sort of biblical fidelity, right? Um, and so I get why a lot of a lot of Christians right now when they see this, because my my first reaction whenever I say it, I was like, oh gosh, here we go again. Um, and and so we, we've been burned so many times in, in recent years on these things. Um, but I, I genuinely don't think that's what's happening here with Alistair. Uh, I think we should, again, with everyone at all times, this is one of these things against... Um, you know, idol worship, hero worship, right? We, we right. can't put we can't put our faith, our, our hero in, in any uh, in any one religious leader or any one person at all, for ex- except for Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so we should always stay on guard on these things. Um, but th- this context feels different than what we've seen from some of those other uh, religious leaders that we've seen go, you know, kind of go off the rails on yeah. certain things. I, I guess to to close just on my side, I, I would. I would caution everyone that, you know, we, we want to fully acknowledge that this is a very um, intense time like we're living in. We've got families that are breaking up because of this LGBT stuff. And, and these are real times. Like, you know, you might say, well, if I don't go to the wedding, then they're not going to come over for Thanksgiving. I'm not, I'm not going to have that opportunity. And these are very real things that we risk. But we have to fear God more than we fear man, even our own families. Yeah. Right. We have to trust God more than we trust our own ability to win somebody, right? And so just last verse, I wanna, it's in Galatians 6. It says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, a sin. So this whole thing where we can't judge sin is, a, is from the pit of hell. Like we have to judge sin. And the scripture says, when you do, right? When someone is caught in a trespass, um, you are, uh, who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and love, right? Each one, listen, each one looking to yourself so that you too 
will not be tempted. This slippery slope stuff with the LGBT thing, whenever you look at different policies like 68 and the SAFE Act and Safe Women's Sports, and you say, how did we get here? It's with this kind of slippery slope yeah. stuff where we put um, offending man above offending God. Yep. And we got to be careful. Amen. Amen. Well, that... That's as great of a place as we're going to come to 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 end that discussion and uh, appreciate both of your thoughts on that. Um, I think really measured and and hopefully helpful for our listeners too as as they're processing through through that and how to just have these conversations um, with family members and things like that as these issues come up. But we're going to take a quick break here and then come back with our interview with Laura Reese. We're going to talk about the the border situation in Texas. I think you're going to be you're going to benefit from this conversation. I hope you stick around for it. It's coming up on the narrative. Hey, Narrative listeners, you know, Christians in the marketplace today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. Businesses are following woke capitalism, chambers of commerce are beholden to social justice, and secular activists are chipping away Christians' First Amendment rights. As Ohio's only Christian chamber of commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to cbpohio.org. That's cbpohio.org. We've got now our special guest today, Laura Reese, who serves as the Director of Border Security and the Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. She's worked for over 26 years in the immigration and homeland security arena. She's twice worked at the Department of Homeland Security on management and immigration policy and operation issues, most recently as the Acting Deputy Chief of Staff. She's worked in the private sector as a homeland security industry strategist and in government relations her commentary and analysis have been published and quoted in multiple print media, and she's done numerous radio and TV interviews and has testified before Congress. Uh, Laura, we're so grateful to, to have you here on The Narrative for the conversation today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. And I should note, too, she's also our first repeat guest. Yeah, there. right. So there's, exactly. a, there's a nice right. distinction for you to add to your bio, Laura. Exactly. <laughs> the first guest to be back. <laughs> well, thanks. I, as we kind of look at the the national landscape around the discussion we're seeing with the Texas border and what's going on right now, we're seeing words like invasion and this escalating standoff between the state of Texas and the Biden administration. What is happening down there? What exactly is going on as a group of guys and a lot of listeners who are in Ohio pretty far removed from that? Can you help us uh, kind of have a framework for what's happening at the Texas border right now? Well, because the Biden administration has really opened our border, uh, Texas is facing the brunt of it. Uh, most of the people are crossing through the southern border. Uh, the northern border has seen an increase as well, but never as high as the southern border. And so Texas is, is the gateway. And uh, recently, there has been a high number of crossings in the Eagle Pass, Texas area. And so there's a piece of land there that is actually city owned and privately owned that Texas uh, Department of Public Safety and the National Guard took over and basically kicked out uh, Border Patrol. Um, there's a park there and there is a boat ramp. Um, and it's that boat ramp that the Border Patrol uses to go into the river. 
Um, and so for the past three years, Texas, the National Guard has been putting up different barriers to try and keep people from entering illegally into Texas, whether that's shipping containers or concertina wire uh, and guarding the border. And meanwhile, the federal agents have been instructed by the Biden administration to remove those obstacles, including cutting the concertina wire. And so Texas sued the Biden administration for trespassing on Texas property and destruction of property, repeatedly cutting that wire. And the district court actually found in Texas's favor. And um, then that was appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and Texas asked for an injunction, basically asking the court, can you please not only tell the feds to stop cutting our wire and trespassing, but tell them they have to stop doing it right now, not wait for the merits to be decided in the courts. And the Fifth Circuit granted that injunction. The Biden administration then sued, uh, appealed that injunction to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court last week issued just a two line order vacating the injunction. So the Supreme Court's ruling was not on the merits but the effect was that Texas is not prevented, or excuse me, the feds are not prevented from cutting wire. But at the same time, this another effect is Texas can keep putting up wire, replacing wire. So we have a bit of a standoff. Then the, the Biden administration told Texas, you have until Friday, this was last Friday, now almost a week ago, to give the feds access again to that area although Biden administration didn't carry out that threat. So that's where we are right now. And that was the the letter that Texas that that Greg Abbott that was you know circulating all over the internet, his his response to that uh, threat was, you know, to put it in Texas terms, come and take it to, to basically say, no, we're not going to stop protecting this area. Essentially, that's what he argued. Is that right? Yeah, Governor Abbott explained in the letter that the federal government has broken their compact with the states. And it was over a year ago now that uh, Governor Abbott declared Texas was being invaded. You mentioned the invasion word earlier uh, under the Constitution. And 25 other states have since uh, stated that they are with Texas uh, since all this has transpired over the past week. Um, now, some that's in word, but some of the states are also sending National Guard or more guard uh, to help Texas guard the Texas border. And the whole crux of this is federal government argues securing the border is our job per the Constitution. Um, and the Biden administration is claiming Texas is interfering with that. But the reality is the federal government is not enforcing the law. They are letting people in and processing them and, and releasing them north. And so it is Texas that's actually enforcing the law. So for so for those that um, may not be completely up to that, and even for myself, as I watch different networks coverage of this uh, invasion, which it really is, I might see different numbers on who's actually coming across how many are coming across, you know, sometimes you're 5,000 a day, sometimes it's 12,000 a day. Um, how many under Biden's, uh, you know, watch was it, was it 8 million, 10 million? So like, what, what are the numbers and do we know um, who's coming across in terms of nationalities? So, 
The grand total that uh, Customs and Border Protection has encountered while Biden has been in office um, is over 8 million. And then when you add into onto that number, the known gotaways that CBP estimates, um, the known gotaways are at least 1.8 million. So if you total those two numbers, we're talking about over uh, 10.4 million illegal alien and inadmissible encounter encounters. And um, Secretary Mayorkas admitted a couple weeks ago to his agents behind a closed door that they're releasing at least 85% of those encountered. So the vast, vast majority are being released into the US. Um, and to your question about, do we know who they are? Well, we know that they're coming from over 170 countries. Wow. Um, there's only 192 countries on the planet. So that's at least 88% of the world is coming here. Um, and they are not being vetted either at all in the case of the known gotaways or woefully um, poorly uh, or inadequately because just due to the crush of the volume, the agents don't have a lot of time to vet these people. And so, uh, you know, part of that means where terror watch list hits are, are getting into the U.S. Some are being caught. Um, the increase of that number is alarming. Uh, so far for the first three months of fiscal year 24, CBP reports 50, actually just Border Patrol, so this is just between the ports, um, has reported 50 terror watch list hits. Um, if you look at numbers pre-Biden, that number was three over an entire year. So bad people are getting in because the agents just can't get to everybody. So, I, I mean, the other thing, Laura, that jumps out to me as you're describing that is, you know, 170 countries, I think the you know the 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 stereotype and or, or that the image that folks have of the southern border is that these are people coming from countries like uh you know colombia or uh venezuela or, or or mexico that they're under you know incredible oppression and they're just doing whatever they can to, to get north i mean that with 170 countries this means people are getting on boats crossing the ocean getting into mex either south america or central america mexico something like that and then coming up from from there flying over to, to the years to some degree, like th this is, um, you know, an, a, a worldwide, uh, approach of, of getting over. Is that, is that the case essentially here? Yeah, absolutely. They're coming from Africa. They're coming from Asia. It's not just Latin America, Eastern Europe, you name it. I was in New York city in, um, in December in times square and a colleague and I walked around the Roosevelt hotel, which is now a migrant shelter. And we would ask people walking around, not that we could get in. We tried getting into the building multiple times, multiple different ways. It was heavily guarded. We could not get in. But just the migrants walking outside around the building where they were from, we heard Chad, we heard Senegal, we heard China. I mean, you name it. And, and is it is it all just because they know they just got to get over to Mexico and, and then get up and, and get in? Is that is that really just the, like they see the open door sign and that's what's inviting them in? Absolutely. And uh, there's there are multiple routes up from the northern part of South America, uh, many going through the Darien Gap in uh, Panama, which, you know, prior to all this was unchartered territory. I mean, extremely dangerous, not no beaten path, but now large groups go through continuously and all the way up north 
to the to the U.S. Yeah. Laura, you mentioned that it's Biden's policies that have led to this kind of influx that we're seeing. Can can you unpack some of some of that? What policies that he's either rolled back or or things that he's not enforcing that are that are causing this crisis that we're seeing at the border? Well, as soon as he took office, he stopped a lot of the successful operations and programs that were in place during the last administration. So he stopped the construction of the border wall. He stopped what was called the Remain in Mexico program, which um, didn't allow people to come up to our doorstep and, and apply for asylum if, if they didn't have um, documents. It, it, that program said, well, you can apply for asylum, but we're not going to release you into the U.S. for you to disappear. You have to stay in Mexico while your application is pending. Um, that was a, a game changer because it stopped the caravans that had been coming up to the U.S. during 2018 and early 2019. Um, he stopped the uh, third country agreements we had with Central American countries, which said, if people are, are traversing your country, didn't apply for asylum in one of your countries, and then get to the U.S. doorstep and suddenly apply for asylum, we're going to send them back to your country. Because if they're really fleeing for their life, you're supposed to ask for protection in the first safe country in which you enter, not country shop, just to get to the U.S. So he ended that program. Um, he also had DHS send out a enforcement priorities memo, which basically told ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and CBP, to not do most of their job, particularly ICE. They, the memo said, you are only to prioritize uh, investigating, arresting, detaining, deporting someone if they are a spy, a terrorist, some convicted aggravated felons, but even that had to go through lots of scrutiny and people who entered illegally since the 2020 election. Um, and you have to get approval for all that and, and submit weekly reports. I mean, they just made it very burdensome for ICE to do their job. And so the net result is catch and re release. As CBP encounters these people, they are released. They are not detained, which violates the immigration statute. They're released into the interior of the U.S. Uh, they're given work authorization and um, they disappear. And so most of these people, you know, at least under this administration, have no threat or worry of being deported. Yeah, we, we're in a, uh, you know, an election year. What impact is this having, Laura, on on Joe Biden? Right. Because I think even the Democrats now are seeing the difference between policy intentions and policy outcomes. Right. So, you know, sanctuary cities sound awesome, you know, when, when you live in the north and, and they're not coming into your backyard. But now when you've got one hundred and ten thousand migrants flooding into New York, you know, even Mayor Adams is saying, OK, enough is enough. This is destroying our city. We're talking about billions of dollars. Um, schools are being shut down you know, for migrants to get in and, and the community is rising up saying, wait a minute, enough is enough. Um, what impact is that having fentanyl and everything that, that is flooding into the nation and cities? What What is that having in terms of the impact on the Democrat um, uh, view of Joe Biden? Well, suddenly immigration border security is the number one issue for, for many states. It was the number one issue for the New Hampshire primary. I mean, who would have predicted that three years ago? Um, and it's because every state's become a border state. When you're talking over 10 million people, then that's a lot of people um, throughout the U.S. And these sanctuary cities, you know, this is a 
classic example of virtue signaling running into the wall of reality. And so these mayors were all in when they first took office about um, how great being a sanctuary city is and they were not going to cooperate with ICE and they weren't going to share information with, with uh, immigration enforcement. And so when they received tens of thousands of illegal aliens, still small numbers compared to what Texas has been dealing with, um, now they're complaining about it. However, they are only ever asking for more federal money. They never change their sanctuary policies. Uh, so it's become a bit of a grift for, for some of these sanctuary officials. Meanwhile, the citizens in their cities are completely fed up. Uh, there has been quite an organic rise and an opposition and protest by uh, New Yorkers and Chicagoans, particularly on the South Side. Uh, they're going to city meetings and, and complaining about this. Um, there was a meeting in Chicago where because a rec center was going to be taken away from the kids that use it to shelter migrants, some parents brought in the, the kids who play football there in their uniforms. I mean, it was it was quite a sight. But um, and so everyone America is is definitely affected by this, whether it is schools being taken over, losing rec centers, parks. Um, housing is difficult to find and more expensive. Um, hospitals, emergency rooms are being filled up. Um, so people are having to wait longer to see someone in the um, an emergency room or their doctor. Uh, and all of this is costing billions of dollars per location. So it's, it's top of the list for uh, this election year. I, I will just say for those cities, and honestly, like I, I say this as somebody who lives in a, a big liberal city. Um, but for those cities like San Francisco, I, I don't feel bad for the people of that city anymore because they keep electing these people that are doing this, right? You look, you look at what San Francisco is, you look at what's happened to to, to Denver and uh, these these places that did everything they could uh, to, to virtue signal, uh, to your point around, you know, drug decriminalization and, uh, you know, bail, you know, no cash bail and all, all of these other ideas. And, uh, you know, you end up with a situation like you just saw in New York, where you know police officers are are assaulted by illegal uh, uh, immigrants, and uh, and you know within two days the immigrants are uh, the, the 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 criminals are are released and are you know flaunting being released like that. It, it, it's the, it's the city that voters are getting what they voted for, um, and and in many ways it feels like until these voters stop uh, doing it, it's going to keep keep cycling down that way. What what is Laura? What is um, you know? Because I think you know we're hearing the city's mayors are saying you know whose responsibility? Okay, you know Abbott, you're responsible because you sent him here. No, I mean he really didn't though, right? Like like what responsibility does Mexico have in all of this, right? And and I know that there's 170 nations, but it seems like most of them are filtering filtering through Mexico's borders. So what what role do they have? Why are they not being engaged? Are they being engaged? I don't know. Well, sometimes they're engaged. It depends. It depends on when the White House calls them up and says, hey, we need you to engage. Uh, we're seeing that a little bit right now uh, after this Texas standoff. Uh, Mexican military have suddenly appeared across the river. Um, Mexico can always do quite a bit by securing its southern border. 
Um, and that was something we had their cooperation um, for during the last administration. The U.S. has considerable leverage when it comes to Mexico, whether it's trade or tariffs or remittances or energy. I mean, you name it. And you, But you need someone in the White House willing to use that leverage. And right now, we don't have a president who's willing to use that leverage. And so Mexico, uh, Mexico's president, frankly, has the upper hand and is making such demands of give us a lot of money, loosen sanctions on my friends in Cuba and Venezuela, you know, et cetera. We don't even know all the terms that uh, the Mexican president has been demanding. So, Laura, I want, I want to ask a question, and, and this this might be too unfair to ask of you in, in some ways. But one of the things that that we always try to do here when we're getting into a debate on whatever the issue is, is can we articulate our opposition's argument in a way that they would recognize it, right? And and so so that we can at least try to find a way to to reason with them. But you know, as, as we hear you lay out the situation on the border, it's so absurd, and 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 it's so. I mean, what the 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 baseline solutions. Are literally just look at what we did. This wasn't happening three years ago. Just let's just do that again, and then maybe we can stop this. And and what would what would how would the Biden administration or would they even acknowledge the question? Do they are they just not ever forced to answer it? But how would if if you were a you know working for the you were talking to a Biden administration official and they were to try to explain why they won't just do that? Again, he inherited the lowest illegal immigration in 45 years. But yeah, what, what would they say of why they, they're not just doing that? Would they have an answer for it? Or what, what would they say in a way that they would actually recognize? Right. I, like I would I would just say because they hate America, but they, they wouldn't say that. Right. Like they they describe it as everyone coming here are asylum seekers. There are vulnerable populations um, suffering in their countries. Um, that it's a worldwide phenomenon. It's happening all over the Western Hemisphere. I mean, it's it's zero fault if you listen to, you know, um, and and some others. It's just kind of happening out of chance or circumstance. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, and and now we're getting into interesting conflicting statements from the administration after testifying for three years that the border's secure, the border's closed, Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security. Um, more recently, we have Biden admitting, no, the border hasn't been secure for 10 years. I think that was a dementia slip there. Um, and now Biden saying, I need Congress to give me this new authority to secure the border. I mean, it's just utterly conflicting statements. Um, but I mean, the numbers don't lie. They can't hide from that. They've they've grown more deceitful about it. Uh, they try and hide video and pictures of it, um, but uh, they're running out of time. So, so that's a good kind of transition there to to what's actually happening in Congress. Can you can you tell us what the debate is there right now, and what you know? Is there any any actual hope for anything to be done? And and even is obviously there's there's broader need for things to be done on immigration, but you know, they could just enforce what we have in place. But what's what's the debate and, and how's it shaken out? So I'll go in, in chronological order. In May, the House passed a very useful, tough border security bill called the Secure the Border Act or HR2. 
And it would take away the tools that the Biden administration is using and abusing and violating um, to carry out his open border agenda. Um, it takes away the mass parole that he has been violating the immigration statute with. And it is clear that, no, this is supposed to be very rarely used in urgent uh, situations when someone doesn't have time to go get a visa. Um, it takes away a lot of the asylum fraud that is used for people to show up on our doorstep and then get in and released. It takes away, uh, it ends the catch and release and says, no, we're not going to follow the single California judge's interpretation that someone can only be held for 20 days. Um, and it undoes that. It requires uh, a mandatory E-Verify, the employment verification uh, tool. And, and it does some other things as well. An excellent bill. So then the White House asks in the fall for uh, billions more dollars in a supplemental for Ukraine, for Israel, for um, Indo-Pacific, and for quote-unquote border security. The border security portion of that money ask is $13.6 billion. And a lot of that would continue to pay off the sanctuary cities to shelter these illegal aliens. It would continue to pay off the non-governmental organizations that are located from Panama all the way north and are facilitating this pipeline of illegal immigration. Um, so the money ask alone should be no deal. Senators should not be funding that. So you have the House saying, hey, we need H.R. 2. We need that Secure the Border Act, Senate. And so now you have some senators negotiating about some immigration policy changes to try and get this deal. Really, for Senator McConnell, for example, it's all about the Ukraine money. That's what he wants. Um, and the net result is, and they haven't released the language yet, but enough of it has leaked out, it would codify the very tools Biden has been using to achieve his open border agenda. So just from a policy perspective, it should be no deal. It would codify his mass parole. It would codify at least 5,000 illegal alien encounters per day before border agents could expel people back across the border. It would accelerate work permits for illegal aliens, which is giving them exactly what they want. It would uh, require taxpayers to pay for deportation defense attorneys and deportation hearings. Um, and so the policy aspects of it are a bad deal. Plus, Biden is just itching to get this blame for all of this off of his shoulders and onto the Republicans. So um, it would be a triple win for Biden and it should be rejected. Is is there, you know, in all the talks for the Republican side, um, are, are they are they talking about building the wall uh, that, that Trump was already starting to build and, you know, just significantly putting in a barrier uh, between Mexico and Ohio? I mean, in, Ohio. in America. <laughs> But there's it, several it, states worth of <laughs> we need a wall in Ohio. Yeah, it's just I, it's, we could keep Kentucky out too. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. We do have Michigan to the north. Yeah, yeah. You don't really hear border wall talk specifically. I mean, it, it is in uh, that HR2, the House passed bill to resume uh, funding for completing the wall portions that the agents asked for. Um, but, but as the Senate is debating that the wall is not leaking out as, as part of it. So I'd be surprised if it's in there. 
So, Laura, how's all this get tied up with? I, I remember I was um, just out a few weeks back for the March for Life in Washington, and it, it felt like at the time um, everything was uh, kind of tied up with Speaker Johnson and the the budget deal, and and you know all, all the the same stuff we're always talking about with the debt limit, the debt ceiling, and all that kind of stuff. How is the immigration conversation getting caught up in in that debate right now as well? Well, they haven't. Uh, both chambers have not passed any appropriations bills jointly. Um, Senate has passed a few, House has passed a few more, but um, neither chamber have passed all 12. And so they still need to address that. They've been living on continuing resolutions for a few months at a time, um, and, and those are going to expire soon. So that becomes a question of should Congress be funding uh, Department of Homeland Security um, for money, again, that would go to NGOs and to sanctuary cities. And so there's an opportunity there to either defund that um, or to attach uh, HR2 to any either next continuing resolution or appropriations for the remainder of this fiscal year. Uh, we also have hanging out there this White House supplemental request that the Senate is looking at um, that hopefully the border security uh, funding, a lot of it would be rejected for, for the same reasons. A couple, couple other things, Laura, as we start to wind down here. You, you mentioned NGOs, and, and I think we might have talked about this uh, last time you were on the podcast, but this is you know, something we're always very cognizant of. Uh, and probably we'll talk about next week. I think we're gonna have Megan Basham on, on the program, but you know, there, there are groups like the evangelical immigration table, some, some Christian groups that have been really pushing for more open border policies, um, really kind of trying to, you know, say this is a place where, you know, Christians should really be working with Democrats and supporting, I, uh, you know, opposing some of the Trump administration's policies and, and supporting some of the Biden administration's policies. Where are these groups right now? Um, as you know, we see, you know, very clearly, trafficking and things like that happening as a result of these Biden administration policies? Are they are they just sort of sticking their head in the sand or what are they saying right now as you guys are monitoring this? They don't say anything about this. They are extremely <laughs> secretive. And what is so fascinating is you will find videos. There was a new video yesterday on Twitter where in the Atlanta airport, a state member of Congress from Georgia uh, was tipped off to this room in the airport where all these illegal aliens are being held and guarded by someone with a military uniform on. And when you knock on the door and ask to speak to an NGO rep, they won't talk. They won't answer any substantive questions. Uh, they won't let you video. And this is a pattern. Uh, my colleague went to Chicago and went to the airport, to the, that, the section of that airport where they are housing, sheltering migrants, same thing. Those NGO reps are silent. They won't answer questions. They are physically abusive. I mean, they will shove you out the door. Um, I, I said earlier, what, talking to um, folks at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York, um, we were trying to ask some questions of the guard there. And at one point, a woman in an Air Force uniform came out of the hotel and stood there. Now, no one could go in except the migrants. So what on earth is the military doing there? Um, and so these organizations, and I don't even know how many there are. They just seem to, um, 
they are excessive in number, whether domestically in the US or, or south of the border, um, being paid by the State Department down there. Um, running this operation, it is quite the infrastructure. Um, I, I think I would love to know how many groups and how much money. So with the, the obviously we have a lot of, uh, it's primarily Ohio listeners uh, for the narrative here. What's the what's the message that people should be delivering to their members of Congress, to, you know, uh, Senator Vance? We, we've got a Senate race going on right now for, you know, Sherrod Brown's running for re-election. What, what's the message that you think voters really need to be pressing their members on and pressing people running for office on right now? Most immediately, it's stop funding this. Stop funding our country's demise. Stop funding this infrastructure of mass illegal immigration that goes through the Department of Homeland Security, State Department, Justice Department, Health and Human Services for unaccompanied children. Um, and then prevent illegal immigration. And, and that's where that HR2, the Secure the Border Act, is so would be so effective. Um, and third, people need to be serious and have the intestinal fortitude to talk about large numbers of deportations starting with this Biden population uh, to remove them because we simply cannot handle these numbers of people uh, or the costs that, that come with it. We deserve, like every other country, to have a safe, orderly, and manageable immigration system year by year. Well, Laura, thanks so much for for unpacking the the situation that's going on right now. It sure seems like the solution's a, a ways off. <laughs> There's a lot of steps to take before we could get to to some of those things that people need to be pressing their lawmakers on. But I think the key there is that it's it's maybe past time to start pressing lawmakers on those things if we're going to have any hope of seeing change. I agree, but hopefully we need to be more organized like the left. It's it's been refreshing to see the organic uh, pushback in New York and Chicago. We need that happening all over the country. Well, thanks, Laura. Really appreciate all your time and your work on this issue. And uh, hopefully we'll see you back for a third time on The Narrative. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative, presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, leave us a review or rating and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, and David Mahan, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative.